Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, minimum depth. On August 7th, after 15 hours of votorama, the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act via the budget reconciliation process, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. Although it's a scaled-down version of the Build Back Better Act, this legislative win for the Democrats addresses health care and climate change priorities while introducing new tax provisions to pay for them. As we're recording this on August 10th, the bill's awaiting its expected passage by the House later this week. Joining me now to talk more about the tax provisions and their importance is Kyle Pomerlo, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first, could you give us your overall impressions of the bill? First, I was somewhat surprised that they were able to bring something together last minute. So I think politically, we thought that the discussion over the Build Back Better Act was dead and that Biden was not going to be able to put forth climate and health care policies that he had campaigned on. And a lot of his tax provisions were ultimately going to die with them. But surprisingly, about a week and a half ago, seemed be resurrected and they were able to put something together. Now, it's on the tax side, it's certainly not as robust as what they had hoped at the beginning. It it leaves out a lot of important tax policies that the Biden administration had been pushing for, chiefly the global tax deal. But it does have some significant revenue raisers and some of them that were originally proposed back during the campaign. There are four major revenue provisions. There's a minimum tax on large multinational corporations. There's a 1% stock buyback tax. There's additional IRS funding for tax enforcement. And then there is a extension of the excess loss limitation on non-corporate, uh, non-C-corporate businesses. All right. So to your mind, is, is this an improvement over what we were seeing in Build Back Better or uh, did we lose some of the important pieces? I think that there are there are some pieces here that are totally reasonable policy. I think the IRS funding is something that lawmakers needed to do a while ago to improve enforcement. Um, on the other hand, there are some policies that I you know wish had been left out. Um, I'll, I'll highlight the the book minimum tax. This is one that you will we'll probably discuss in in more depth here, but it's not one that's very popular amongst tax experts, and I'm. You know, frankly, surprised that this lasted all the way until and in, in was able to cross the finish line. Well, let's get into that. So how does this book minimum tax work? So this proposal was originally put forth by the Biden administration. The way this works is is a 
reintroduction effectively of an alternative minimum tax for corporations. Corporations will be paying the greater of their ordinary tax liability or 15% of their adjusted financial statement income. Financial statement income is the income that they report on their statements to their shareholders. This is not a taxable income concept developed by the IRS, but rather something that is regulated by FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. This book, Minimum Tax, only applies to the very largest corporations, corporations with net income of $1 billion or more. And there are adjustments. So it's not purely on book income or financial statement income. Companies can offset financial statement income with net operating losses. And then at the last minute, they also added a carve out for accelerated depreciation and purchases of spectrum for certain companies. And politically, they needed to carve out general business credits. So companies can offset their book tax liability with credits such as the research and development credit and green energy credits. Now, I guess the, the question there is, is this a practical method of taxation or is it just going to add complexity and not necessarily raise revenue that it's expected to? I think it's probably going to raise revenue. So the Joint Committee on Taxation expects that this would raise about $222 billion over 10 years, I believe. And that's down from about $313 billion from the original proposal due to these carve-outs that they put forth. Now, your first point, however, is I, I agree with that. I think it it's going to be adding complexity. Minimum taxation, I think, is always second, third, or fourth best in terms of tax policy. You'd much rather have lawmakers examine the current corporate income tax, ask themselves, does this deduction make sense? Does this credit make sense? Debate that, and then either repeal that or keep that in the tax code. Putting a parallel tax in place, I think, simply does add a lot of complexity. And it's especially complex because the base of this tax is financial accounting income, not another definition of taxable income. So this is going to require additional rules and a lot of rules put forth by Treasury. If you look at the legislative text, there is a lot of the secretary shall determine X, Y, and Z. And that's because the starting point for this tax is not a tax base. That definition of income is meant for something else. It's meant to provide information to capital markets, to shareholders about the performance of a firm. It's not meant to set, equitably set tax liability for corporations. Now, how far apart are the tax accounting rules from these book accounting rules? I don't know if there is any overall metric we can use to determine that, but there are tons of differences that matter for this tax and how it's going to impact the incentives of firms um, and also taxes. So when we talk about this minimum tax and the effective tax rates that corporations are paying, we talk a lot about book tax differences. And this is differences between income defined under book and income defined under tax. And some of the major ones that people point to is the accounting of depreciation for new capital investment companies that invest in new machinery or factories. They generally have to deduct the cost of that asset over its expected life. If they think that a factory is going to produce income over 30 years, they're going to deduct that over 30 years for book tax purposes. Taxable income purposes, on the other hand, those assets are, are deducted over schedules defined by 
the tax law under modified accelerated cost recovery system or makers. And there can be differences that arise, especially with shorter live assets, um, assets like machines. They can be fully expensed or deducted fully in the first year for tax purposes, but they have to be deducted over a longer period for book purposes. So that creates differences where one definition of income may be broader than the other in certain years and vice versa. Then there are other major differences, the treatment of uh, stock option compensation for employees of businesses. That's different uh, for tax purposes and book purposes. The tax treatment of interest expense, the tax code limits the amount of interest that companies can deduct against taxable income under for financial accounting purposes. Those expenses are fully deducted. The treatment of losses can be different. Now, this proposal makes sure that losses are treated the same in both, but the starting point for financial statement income is there's a difference there. And the list goes on, so I don't, I don't want to keep on going here, but there are quite a few differences here between these two definitions of income. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at safesend.com to get started and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season. Now that covers differences that exist today, but accounting rules get updated periodically. What's going to happen as accounting rules are adjusted over time? This brings up another potential concern with this tax that right now financial statement income is defined as X, but FASB may deem it necessary to make changes or improvements to the definition of financial statement income. So that definition could change over time, and that could ultimately impact the amount of federal revenue that is collected, because if a portion of federal tax collections have been outsourced to this definition of income, FASB, in a sense, has control over a portion of that revenue. So that is a potential concern there. Another is that financial accounting income is is more flexible than taxable income. I brought up depreciation before. Under the tax code, depreciation is determined by fixed schedules. You know, a factory is going to be deducted the same, whether it's in the hands of company A or company B. But for financial statement purposes, a factory could be deducted at different rates based on the determination of the managers there who believe that, well, this factory is only going to be in service for 25 years versus 30 years. And that can change the levels of income for these companies. And that brings up a potential what economists call horizontal equity issue, that you may have two companies that are in roughly the same economic position, but their potential book tax liability might be different because of these choices they make with respect to financial accounting. Is it possible that the book accounting process is going to start looking more like tax accounting or you know, will one infect the other as people are trying to make the system make more sense? Another potential behavioral effect related to that is that we know under 
currently in the world, companies try to minimize their revenues and maximize their expenses to the extent legally allowable for tax purposes to minimize their tax liability. And a potential behavioral effect under the book minimum taxes, we may see that same that same effect where revenues might be somewhat understated relative to where they are now and expenses overstated in order to minimize book tax liability. Um, there is some evidence from the late 80s suggesting that this is this is a potential effect in the 1986 Tax Reform Act briefly um, had a provision that required companies to use financial statement income and research found that sales were timed in a way to minimize book income in order to minimize the effect of this provision in the in the tax code. So are companies really going to be reporting lower revenue in the future in order to avoid these taxes potentially? It's possible. And it, it might be a timing effect. So companies may be changing the timing of, of revenues and expenses to game this. They may be changing the timing of investments in order to game this. But I don't know if the effect in the in the macro sense, it's going to be very large. After all, this minimum tax is only affecting, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation, roughly 150 companies in any given year. So it's not a huge number of companies. While those companies are large and they account for a large share of economic output, we're not talking about a minimum tax that applies to every single company in the economy. But I, I, I think that there, there are areas in which companies may um, change their behavior at the margin in order to minimize tax liability. So now this minimum tax is happening at the same time that we're talking globally about a different minimum tax. So how are those two going to coexist? Unsure. Uh, so, so just to make it clear here, we're, we're talking about a 15% minimum tax um, that passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act that is entirely different than the other 15% minimum tax that is currently being discussed under the Global Tax Deal or Pillar 2. So that, that proposal, while also 15% and also starts with financial statement income to some degree, I think from there, the similarities end. While the book minimum tax is more of a domestic alternative minimum tax for corporations, Pillar 2 is more of a, a wholesale change to the taxation of foreign profits in order to reduce the incentive to shift profits to low-tax jurisdictions. And it's part of this deal that other countries are going to go in on this in that the goal is to stop what is referred to as the race to the bottom. Countries are reducing their tax burden on corporations in order to attract highly mobile income. So totally different beasts here. It is an open question of how these are going to interact or if they're going to interact at all, how the OECD is going to view this corporate alternative minimum tax in the context of Pillar 2. The reason this is an open question is that the United States currently has a minimum tax on foreign profits, guilty global intangible low tax income. This is a minimum tax of roughly 105 to 13.125%. And the Biden administration has been pushing for reforms to guilty to align it with this OECD deal. And I think there may be a question as to whether this book minimum tax, which does to some degree apply to foreign profits. So when companies calculate their book minimum tax liability, they are looking at their foreign profits. Is this 
going to count in any way? How is this going to interact? And I don't, I don't think that that's been resolved. Um, I, I am on the side of this that thinks that this is entirely unrelated, um, and that I don't think that this looks very much like Pillar Two. And this, in a, in a sense, this book tax looks more like current law guilty than it does the Pillar Two reforms, especially with regard to how this tax is calculated. Guilty is a worldwide calculation. Companies look at their total foreign profits and total foreign taxes in calculating their minimum tax liability under that tax. That's similar to the book minimum tax, where you're looking at worldwide profits and worldwide taxes. Pillar 2, on the other hand, requires a country-by-country calculation. So those are significant differences between the two. So I I don't know um, how you square that circle at the end of the day. Is it possible that the Biden administration and Congress will go back and introduce a Pillar 2 compliant version of guilty or the minimum tax? It's going to depend on the makeup of Congress. We know we know that Republicans have been very skeptical of this process. And if Republicans take the House, it's hard to see a path for Biden administration to get Pillar 2 reforms through. Now, that doesn't mean it's dead forever. There are scheduled tax changes that could spur lawmakers to make reforms. And also it depends on what other countries do. So if other countries enact Pillar 2, this could encourage the United States to enact Pillar 2 reforms itself. um, Because the way Pillar 2 works is that if you don't tax these low tax profits, someone else will. So it tries to create this incentive that, well, it's being taxed anyway, we might as well collect the revenue. Um, So it down the road, it, there's a potential, but I'm still, you know, skeptical that at least in the near term, there's a path to getting these reforms through. Now, I understand there were some some last minute changes made to the book minimum tax spurred on by concerns over, I think it was investment in, in startups. Could you explain that? There were a couple changes to the book minimum tax. And I think the biggest of which was due to concerns about manufacturers and the impact that the book minimum tax would have on accelerated depreciation. We talked about this. A significant book tax difference is the treatment of depreciation. The book minimum tax requires assets to be depreciated over a longer period of time. So if you're a company that's perpetually subject to the book minimum tax, you could face a higher cost of capital. And this could impact capital intensive industries like manufacturing. So they went back and they allowed companies to use accelerated depreciation when figuring their book tax income and book tax liability. So that so if you're now a capital intensive company that uses accelerated depreciation above the 1 billion threshold, you are less likely to be subject to the tax. And then there were also changes to what others have called this aggregation rule um, that could impact whether companies hit the threshold. Um, And I think, so this I think gets into partnerships and a part of the tax law that I am less familiar with and probably a lawyer is a better person to ask, but the very short of it is that it changed a rule for how companies that may own other companies attribute that income back up to the top in figuring whether you hit that $1 billion threshold. 
Our parent company, Tax Analyst, has released its first annual tax advisory industry report. It was created to assess the growth outlook for the tax advisory industry and provide insights into tax advisors' challenges, solutions, and main goals for 2022. Download the Tax Advisory Industry Report today at taxnotes.co slash report. That's taxnotes.co slash report. The other change that came out kind of late in the process was that we saw this new excise tax on stock buybacks. What is the purpose of this tax? Part of scaling back the book minimum tax was to replace that revenue with a new tax, and the the, the new tax is this 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. This is a proposal that's been floating around for a little more than a year, coming from Senate Finance. And the, the idea behind this tax is that, uh, well, I think there might be a couple ideas. There, there's a political perception that buybacks are, are bad um, and taxing them um, will discourage them and that, would be, that will be better. And then I think that there, is a, there are tax implications that because capital gains are based on the realization principle, stock buybacks have a slight tax advantage over a similar economic activity, which is paying dividends. And the excise tax is a very rough justice way of trying to bring those tax burdens closer together. There's also an issue with foreign tax, uh, foreign shareholders, and foreign shareholders may face withholding taxes at the border when a dividend's paid out from the United States, but they may not they don't face any withholding tax when there is a capital gains realization through a buyback. This 1% tax, again, rough way of trying to address these concerns. Do you expect to see any behavioral changes, companies shifting more toward dividends? Certainly. There is research suggesting that companies are aware of the taxes that their shareholders pay and that um, changing the relative tax treatment of one or the other can shift the behavior of companies. And um, you may see a slight shift over to dividends relative to current law um, due to this 1% excise tax. Does that change the amount that this gets scored or was that factored in as they were trying to figure out how much this would raise? The Joint Committee on Taxation generally includes behavioral effects when they score these things. So they assume that the size of the economy is fixed, but taxpayers can change their behavior to minimize tax liability. And here, it, this is an area where they likely incorporated that effect. So turning to the sort of last major piece of tax policy in this bill is new funding for the IRS. So how much more money are they getting and, and how are they expected to use it? The new funding for IRS, it's about $80 billion over a decade. Um, this money is going to be used for a combination of things, primarily enforcement, but also IT um, and uh, taxpayer services. And this has been scored as raising an additional roughly $200 billion over a decade. So on net, um, after accounting for that upfront investment, this is about a $120 billion revenue raiser for um, the federal government. Now, do you expect that this sort of money can significantly close the tax gap? It's not going to significantly close the tax gap, but it's going to be working in that direction. So uh, the concern over the last decade has been that IRS funding has been declining in real terms. This has been impacting real activity at the IRS, hiring, enforcement, 
audits. Those things have been declining. Uh, the IRS also is known to have ancient uh, IT um, over the, and that affects services as well. And this additional funding is meant to address those concerns. And part of that is going to be increased tax collections from enforcement, both directly from audits that change people's tax liability, but also indirectly from behavioral effects that people are know that the IRS is paying closer attention. So people are going to do a little bit less tax evasion. All right. So I guess that leads to my final question. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. Does this bill reduce inflation? Not really. So I think the bill at best will have a minimal impact on the price level in either in either direction. So just very basic model here is that fiscal policy can impact prices by changing the demand for goods and services in the economy. And when the economy is closer to capacity, it's running more normally, increases in government spending, cuts in taxes, can increase demand for goods and services, and that can bid up prices. Now, looking at the Inflation Reduction Act, it has on an annual basis nearly a minimal impact on the budget deficit. I think in the first couple of years, there are a couple of years where it reduces the deficit, a couple of years where it increases the deficit, so it kind of wavers. And then in the latter half of the decade, it's reducing the deficit. Um, so there you may have downward pressure on prices, but the effects, again, may be minimal. If you're looking at the type of taxes that the federal government will be levying under this proposal, minimum tax on book income, stock buyback tax, these are the type of taxes that impact very high income households. And these households are less likely to spend each additional dollar that they receive or reduce spending for each additional dollar that they lose in after-tax income. So the effect on spending is going to be small, um, even with the deficit reduction. And then after all of that, it depends on what the Federal Reserve does. Ultimately, the Federal Reserve is mandated with keeping the price level consistent, and the Federal Reserve is going to see this fiscal policy. And if it believes that fiscal policy is going to have an impact on prices, it's going to react in a way to keep prices consistent. Um, so that, again, it's yeah, I think ultimately it's it's close to zero, I think is the right answer. Well, all right. Well, Kyle, thank you for being here. Uh, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Peter Richmond proposes regulatory reforms to improve the federal income tax treatment of corporate stock buybacks. Lawrence Axelrod explores opportunities to harvest losses while minimizing the financial risk and avoiding application of the wash sale rule. In Tax Note State, David Yuri Ben Carmel explores two recent state decisions in which tax planning did not go well. Robert Willens looks at the developing conflict between the way the federal courts and California evaluate partner guarantee arrangements. In Tax Notes International, Mindy Hersfeld offers suggestions for future work on international tax reform. She writes stakeholders would be well advised to begin with smaller projects and work their way up rather than try to make bold sweeping changes first. 
for KPMG practitioners explore how the recent changes in the foreign tax credit regulations have introduced several possibly unintended consequences to the engineering and construction industry. In featured analysis, Nana Amasarfo reviews recent developments in the ongoing discourse over digital services taxes. And finally, on the opinions page, Marie Sapiri examines what the IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act means for taxpayers. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at taxnotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analysts is proud to announce a partnership with the American Bar Association Section of Taxation to launch the Tax Analyst Public Service Fellowship. This new two-year fellowship offers practicing tax attorneys the opportunity to work in public interest tax law with a nonprofit or government entity. For the inaugural year of this fellowship, the sponsoring organization will be La Posada Tax Clinic in Twin Falls, Idaho. The deadline to apply has now been extended to August 15th. Applicants must either have three years experience practicing law, received an LLM in taxation, or completed a clerkship with the tax court. Experience working with low-income taxpayers or in a public service or immigration-related organization is not required but would be beneficial. This includes participation in a low-income tax clinic or immigration clinic during law school, volunteering at a volunteer income tax assistance site, or handling tax pro bono matters. Applicants must be independent, committed to a future in public service, flexible, and adept at solving problems. For more information and for links to apply, visit taxnotes.com fellowship. That's taxnotes.com fellowship. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.